I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law does he meditate day and night. I will delight myself in thy statutes, and I will not forget thy word. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live and keep thy word. Open thou mine eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of your Torah. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Lord, I pray that the hymns that we sung this afternoon was tenderizer for our hard, calloused hearts. That it was like the hoe or the plow that breaks up the fallow ground to receive the seed of the word. I pray, Lord, that you would give me the words to say, that the words that would come out of my mouth would be your words and not my own. That I would be your megaphone this afternoon to speak truth of your word, the word that the people need to hear, the word that I need to hear. And that we would take this word and it would find fertile soil of our hearts to be planted in and to grow and to germinate and to sprout forth and to fruit, much fruit, Lord. Your word is so sweet. It's like honey to my lips. Thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice of the men and women to bring us the word in our own language. Lord, I just think of William Tyndall and how he gave his life, opposed all authority, man-made authority and religious authority, because he believed with all his heart that man should have the word of God in their own language. And as, as a result, we're sitting here with our Bibles today. The majority of it was the translation of William Tyndall. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that. Man, what a reward he must have received, you know, after, after he was burned at the stake. Many people have been burnt for worse crimes, but Lord, he literally became a living sacrifice for you. Lord, help us as we read and study your word. Help us to know what it's trying to say to us so we can apply it to our hearts and our lives and our minds. For we ask and pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. So this go around, this annual Torah cycle, the theme is finding good in bad situations. In every Torah portion, we're going to try to find the bad and see the good in those bad situations. So a question I'm going to ask all throughout this year is, what's so good about that? Or where's the good in that? Because a lot of times you'll, you'll have the naysayers who, who love to read the word, not because they love God, not because they want to know what God is saying, but because they want to try to find something to discredit the word of God. To say, ha ha, see, you see here, here's a contradiction. See, that doesn't make sense. See, God is not a loving God. See, he's not a holy God. See, see, there's nothing to this. Why do they want to discredit the word? Because they don't want to be accountable to the word. Amen. Why do, not, why do they not want to believe in God? Because they do not want to be accountable to a holy God. So we are in the Torah portion of Noah. And so to turn to Genesis chapter 6. So this is all about the end of the world. We're hearing a lot about that lately. The end of the world. I remember one time, this was during the uh, Gulf War. I was in high school. And... Uh, you know, that, that was the talk on the news, all on the news about the war and about, you know, Israel being possibly being attacked. And so me and my friends, we, we were tired of it. We didn't want to have to deal with that. So we decided to go roller skating that night. And my mom and dad were glued to the television. And they were seeing the possible attack on Israel as a result of the Gulf War, right? 
Storm and Norman led that Gulf War, right? And so uh, I said, Mom, we're, I'm going to go out. And my mom, being the Southerner that she was and being the, the, the Bible believer and the believer that Israel is God's people, she just had this pitiful look on her face. She says, oh, honey, I'd rather you not go out tonight. What if Jesus comes back? And I actually had to chuckle. I said, Mom, I said, if I'm roller skating and Jesus comes back, I'll meet you somewhere up in the air. We're going to the same place. Yeah. <laughs> then she under then she realized how ridiculous uh, of what she said was. She said, All right, go on, go. <laughs> so uh, the end of the world in Genesis chapter six, we begin with verse nine. It says these are the genealogies of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, and he was blameless among his generation. Uh, so if you get into the Hebrew, the Hebrew just not only implies that he was morally upright, uh, that he was righteous before God, he was th the most righteous guy in his generation, uh, but it also lends to a hint that he was genetically pure. Because at this point in the game, the fallen angels had cohabitated with the daughters of men, and God said, I'm only going to put up with this for 120 more years. After that, that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm drawing the line. And so if you even read in the book of Jude or the letter of Jude, it kind of implies not only humans but animals. All flesh had corrupted itself. So there was something that was outside of God's purpose, outside of God's created order, that entered into the game and just changed the whole ballgame. Because you'll get a lot of people who will say, oh, well, you claim that your God is such a loving God. Why did he wipe out the, enti the entire earth? I mean, don't you realize there were innocent women and innocent children? And yeah, maybe so. But the majority of the world had been genetically polluted, genetically corrupted. They were unredeemable because they were no longer fully human. They were half angel, half human. They were the Nephilim. But even if there were innocent people, and I'm sure there probably were some innocent people, maybe not on the level of righteousness as Noah or his family, but they probably didn't deserve that. So how do, we, how do we navigate this? To claim and to say that God is a loving, just God, and he's not a genocidal God that just wiped everybody out willy-nilly. Well, you think of it this way. A lot of times we'll hear on the news and we'll see where a child has been born to drug addicts and alcoholics, and they've neglected this child, and they found this child dead in their crib. Oh, well, how could a loving God? Well, you know what? I'm glad that, that child died because that child is in a much better place. God was merciful to that child and took that child early so as not to allow that child to grow up with drug addicts and alcoholics where they would have been abused physically and sexually and mentally. And they probably would have never come to know the Lord and they would have grown up in such an environment and most likely statistically died and went to hell. My God is a loving, just God and would not allow that child to go through that. So there might have been innocent women and children that have and innocent animals. I'm sure that not every animal deserved to be wiped out in the flood. But God did it out of mercy for them. And they had a chance. They had a chance. They had 120 years to see it Noah's way, to see it God's way, to repent. The invitation to come into the ark of safety was open to all. 
and no one took that offer. So even if they were innocent, they were guilty of not accepting God's invitation to come into the ark of safety. Oh, I can't believe in a loving God that would send somebody to hell. Well, that's good. I'm glad you've said that because my God has never sent one person to hell. He's never sent one individual to hell. Everybody who is in hell is in hell because of their own choice, their own decision. God, you know, it, 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 it's, it's not like you can't choose. Not choosing is a choice. And by default, not choosing, you're on the wrong side. So, okay, well, that was a little rabbit trail. But these are the genealogies of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among his generation, and Noah continually walked with God. That's the key right there. Do I believe that you can lose your salvation? Well, no, because my salvation is not a set of car keys or a phone that I could lose, right? <laughs> but I can forfeit my salvation. I can take these car keys and says, I'm through with this stinking car. I don't want this stinking car. Here, Darren, take my keys. You can have the car. I don't care. I could forfeit my car. Or I can say, you yeah, stupid phone. I don't want it anymore. I can forfeit my phone and just toss it away. My salvation is not, is, is, is not something I can lose, but it's something that I can willingly forfeit by the choice of my own will. And so we see here that Noah continually walked with God. It wasn't an on-again, off-again relationship with God. He walked with him continually. And that's how we maintain our salvation is continually walking with him. I'm not saying it's an act of works. But works and grace go together because James says that um, faith, that's belief in God, belief in what he did, belief in what his son did on the cross, faith without works is dead. Faith is not enough to save you. I've given this example before. If I get bit by a venomous snake and sitting right in front of me is the antidote, the anti-venom, I can say, oh, 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 well, bless God, I believe with all my heart that this anti-venom will save me from this deadly snake bite. But if I don't take it, I'm going to die. I can believe with my whole heart all I want that that anti-venom is going to save me. But if I don't employ works and take it, I'm dead. Faith without works is dead. I have to reach out and grab that anti-venom and take it, ingest it into myself in order to be saved. So we see that there is a, a partnership between faith and works. you got to have both. And I think this, this passage plays this out where it says Noah continually, habitually walked with God. Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, this is a question that I get a lot. Well, how do we have all these different people groups in the world? You know, red, yellow, black, white, and all this kind of stuff. Where did that come from? Well, scientifically, Adam and Eve had to be black. That may be a shock to a lot of people. Why did they have to be black? Because you have to have a lot of melanin in order to have less of it. It can't be the other way around. You can't have no melanin and all of a sudden have it coming out of nowhere. You have to have melanin before you have a lack of it. So up until Noah, everybody was born black, dark-skinned. Noah was the exception. According to the apocryphal literature, you're not going to find it in the canonical scriptures, but it's hinted that Noah may have been an albino, which means he didn't have any melanin. And the reason being is in the apocrypha, 
his father went to his grandfather and says, Ah, I think there's something wrong with my son. I think maybe my wife had an affair on me with a fallen angel because he looked so strange. And his grandfather says, Oh, no, 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 it's all right. It's all good. This is of the Lord. So when Noah and Mrs. Noah had children, it's believed that Shem, Ham, and Japheth came out in different colors. You had Ham, who looked like everybody else before him, and he was black, and he is indeed the father of the African peoples. You have Shem, who came out brown, and he is the father of all the Jewish, Hebrew, Israelite, and Arab peoples. Then you had Japheth, who was born white. Not as white as Noah, because he didn't have any melanin, so Japheth had some. This is all of the Caucasian people, the white people, the Asian people. And then you had these three people groups mix, and that's why you get all the other different variations that we see in the world, the uh, red and yellow, black and white. So that's another little rabbit trail, but I thought it would be an important thing to answer there. So Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was ruined before God. And the earth was filled with violence. Another mercy of God. If God was not a loving God and not a merciful God and didn't give that 120-year time limit and just let things go, number one, everybody would have been genetically corrupted. Number two, we probably would have killed each other off. He stopped the violence. He stopped the genetic pollution and corruption. The flood was an act of mercy. Now the earth was filled, was ruined before God and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold, it was ruined because all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I'm going to bring ruin upon them along with the land. Make for yourself an ark. Now this, it's interesting. I've been translating Genesis literally this year. Last year, I put the Bible into my own words, the first five books of Moses. I'm putting it literally. And it doesn't say ark, it says box. So it was just a big giant box that he built. So we can say that probably the ark was was rectangular in shape. It wasn't had this bow on it, this beautiful bowed bow and all this kind of stuff. Most likely, it was just a box, like a, like a, like a big freight, cargo freight. So he said, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with compartments and smear pitch on it, both inside and out. That's to waterproof it, of course. Uh, and we're, we're just going to stop right there. So another time people say, well, if God is such a loving and holy and just God, why does he let evil continue and bad guys get away with stuff? Out of his mercy, because he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So he, even though it looks like bad guys are getting away with something, he's allowing bad guys to live a little bit longer so they'll have at least one more day, one more chance to accept them if they will. But God has his limit. Just like he had that 120-year limit and brought on the flood, he's going to have a limit with every bad guy. Even the bad guys who are running this world right now, there's going to come a time where God says, that's it, the hammer's coming down. So, the earth is going to be destroyed and all but eight people are going to be wiped out. So where's the good in that? Where's the good in just God preserving eight people? Well, I kind of answered it before I even asked that question. I gave you tons of examples how it was a good thing, how it was a merciful thing. And we don't look at it that way. But let me remind you of Genesis 3, chapter 5, or <coughs> chapter 3, verse 15. 
So it says, I will put animosity between you and the woman. This is God addressing the serpent uh, in regards to the woman. I will put enmity or animosity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So that kind of gives hint of this plan that God already knew that Satan was going to try to pull off the fallen angels cohabitating with the daughters of men producing these hybrids. Between your seed and her seed, he being her seed, the seed of the woman, and that's strange because women don't have seed, men have seed. So this is even hinting of the virgin birth. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. So on the cross, Yeshua crushed the head of, of Satan. Well, at the same time, that nail that pierced his foot and went through his foot and heel is almost like that serpent strike to his heel. So in order for that prophecy to be fulfilled, he had to destroy what was corrupted in order to ensure that the purity of the human race would continue on and that the Messiah could be brought through that line. And as we read in Genesis 6, 4, it says the Nephilim. In the King James, it says the giants. Nephilim means fallen ones. So this is the product of the sons of God, the B'nai Ha Elohim, the fallen angels, cohabitating with the daughters of men. For them, it was, it was an honor because they looked at these fallen angels as gods, false gods. And to be impregnated by a god and to have a, a demigod, that was a privilege. That was an honor. It was seen as a privilege thing. So who wouldn't want to do that? The fallen ones, the giants, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and gave birth to them, those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. And so it was in order, the flood was in order to wipe out this infestation of Nephilim, this infestation of giants to ensure the purity of the messianic line to be brought through uh, Noah, through his son Shem. Now Shem means name. What a, what a weird what a weird name to name your kid. Hey, name, come here. Hey, name, did you clean your room? We think of a name as just an identifier. But a name in Eastern thought means authority. So basically, no one named him authority because Shem was given the priesthood of the family. And according to rabbinic tradition, which is unbeknownst to most of Christendom, Melchizedek is Shem. Because Shem was still alive when Abraham was born, when Isaac was born. There's even a legend that after the binding of Isaac, where he almost lost his life, that it says that, that it doesn't say that Isaac returned with Abraham, said that Abraham returned to his men and they went back to wherever. And everybody's like, well, where's, where's, where's Isaac? According to tradition, he went to Shem to study with Shem. That's true or not, we don't know for sure, but an interesting, interesting uh, theory. So when God wipes something out of your life, it may seem cruel. Now, when I was little and we moved into this new house, I don't even remember this. I just remember this story from my mom. Uh, that's when they had turpentine in those dark glass bottles. Well, I thought that was uh, pop or something or root beer. And I grabbed that thing and put that thing to my lips and my mom jerked that out of my hand and I, I pitched a fit because it was something I wanted. You know, I thought it was cruel. I thought it was mean. But what my mom did that I thought was cruel and mean actually protected me, actually saved my life. Yeah. So when God wipes something out of your life, it may seem cruel. But number one, it's to somehow protect us. Number two, it's to restore us and make us better. 
So whenever we experience loss in our life, it's not because God is punishing us, it's not because God is being mean to us, or the world's against us, or it doesn't even mean Satan's attacking us necessarily. But it means that God has something better in store for us, and he's preparing for us, for us, that something better. So I want to relate to you that very thought in the book of Job. Interestingly enough, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. It was actually written before Genesis was penned. So in Job chapter 42, starting with verse 12, we read, So this was at the end of Job's life, after he lost all of his cattle, all of his camels, all of his livestock, all of the herds, lost all his children in one cataclysmic house collapse because of a sandstorm. He lost most of his servants. He lost his health. He had sores from head to toe. All this bad stuff happened to him. But it says here in Job chapter 42, after he went through all that, starting with verse 12, So Adonai blessed Job's latter days more than at his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the, names, uh, he called the name of the first uh, Jemima, and not the one that makes the, 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 the maple syrup. That was another one. Yeah. Jemima, the name of the second, Kiza, the name of the third, Kieran Hapakuk. And uh, nowhere in the land were found women as beautiful as the daughters of Job. Their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. Now, we don't know how long he suffered. We don't know how long this tragic loss was. Some say it was months. Others say it was years. But regardless, that short amount of time that he lost everything, that God wiped, allowed things to be wiped out of his life, he lived 140 years after that. And those 140 years was much better than whatever small portion of his life that he went through that was so rough. After this, Job lived 140 years and he saw his children and their children for four generations. Wow. And so Job died old and full of days. So if you're experiencing crisis, you're experiencing loss, you're, you're thinking, God, why are you allowing this happen, to happen to me? It's, believe me, it's for your good. It's for your better. There's something better at the end of it. You just got to persevere and make it through to the end because the scripture says those who endure to the end shall be saved. Noah, it says, continually walked with the Lord. That means through good times and bad times. Through the times where he was building an, a, a big box in the middle of the desert and everybody making fun of him like, you old senile fool. And him preaching, repent, repent. Oh yeah, you're just one of these kooks. You've lost it. Right? And he, he was probably persecuted. But he survived. And because he survived, we're here today. Now, Noah's, Noah's flood. I want to read to you something in Leviticus. Now, God is a God of order. God does not make exceptions, so to speak. God even plays by the own rules he sets up. He has the ability and the authority to change him at, it, at will, to, to do even what he doesn't command. He can do anything he wants. He's God. But when God dictates and sets rules, he even follows these own rules himself. Because he's a holy God, he's a just God, he's a righteous God. So in uh, Leviticus, let me see here. Okay, in Leviticus chapter 13, 
starting with verse 47, we get a principle. We get a principle of... <laughs> so we get this principle that something needs to be cleansed twice. If it's not cleansed on the first go-round, you wash it again. If it's not washed again, then it has to go into the fire. So uh, this is talking about uh, clean and unclean, something clean and unclean. So in Leviticus 13.47, it says, Also, when a garment has the mark of the arets on it, other, you know, King James says leprosy. In other words, it's like mold, mildew, whatever. Also, when a garment has the mark of leprosy on it, whether it's in the wool or a linen garment, whether it's woven or textured linen or wool or leather or anything made from leather, or if it, the mark is greenish or reddish, so we know it's talking about some sort of mold because there's red mold, green mold, black mold, within the garment or in the leather, or in the weaving, or in the texture, or anything made from leather, it is the plague of Zaaretz, and should be shown to the Kohen, to the priest. The priest is to examine the plague and isolate it for seven days. Then he is to re-examine the plague, and on the seventh day, if the plague has spread in the garment, either in the weave, the texture, or the leather, whatever the use for the leather uh, may be the plague of destructive mildew, it is unclean. He is to burn the garment or the weaving or the texture, woolen or linen, or anything of leather uh, in which the plague resides, for it is destructive mildew, and it is burned with fire. If the Kohen examines it, and behold, the plague is not spread in the garment, neither in the weaving, the texture, or anything made of leather, the Kohen should command that it be washed. And they wash the thing which has the mark, and he isolates it for seven more days. Then the Kohen is to re-examine it, and after the mark has been washed, and behold, if the mark has not changed its color, and it does not spread, it is unclean. You are to burn it with fire. Whether, uh, whether the rot is inside or outside, if the Kohen looks and sees the mark has faded after it has been washed, then he is to tear it out of the garment, uh, or the leather, or the weaving, or the texture. But if it appears again in the garment, either in the weaving, or the texture, or anything made of leather, in its spreading, you are to burn it with fire, whatever has the mark. The garment or the weaving or the texture, whatever leather item it is that you have been that has been washed, if the mark has departed from it, it is to be washed a second time and will become clean. This is the Torah. This is the law for a mark of Zaaretz in the garment of wool or linen, whether in the weaving or the texture or anything of leather, to pronounce it clean and to pronounce it unclean. So we see an example that in certain instances, something that is unclean is washed twice. And if it still isn't clean, it's burned. So there were two floods. Whether you realize it or not, there were two floods. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Period. We know that God creates things orderly. God creates things complete. God creates things whole. But wait a second, something bad happened between verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, now the earth was chaos and waste and darkness was on the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. This kind of hints. This kind of hints that there was a pre-edemic flood. That there was a flood before God recreated everything. Because the earth was already there when he said, be light made and, you know, let fish swim and birds fly and you know let there be foliage and all this kind of stuff 
So there was a pre-edemic flood. That was the first washing. We don't know what happened. We don't know if angels inhabited the world. We don't know if there was a pre-edemic race. We don't know for sure, and it really doesn't matter. But it testifies that God keeps his word. It was washed once through the pre-edemic flood. Then what we just read in Genesis chapter 6, let me read verses uh, 5 through 8. So it says, Then Adonai saw the wickedness of hum humankind was great on the earth, and that every inclination and thought of their heart was only evil all the time. So Adonai regretted that he made man humankind on the earth, and his heart was deeply pained. So Adonai said, I will wipe out humankind whom I have created. Second washing. We're getting to a second washing. I will wipe out humankind whom I have created from the face of the ground, from humankind to livestock, crawling things, flying creatures of the sky, because I regret that I have made them. But Noah found grace, found favor in Adonai's eyes. So there were two floods, the pre-Adamic flood and the Noadic flood. And you say, okay, that's great, but didn't we read in Leviticus that there was going to be a burning with fire? Yep. Peter takes care of that. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 reads, But the day of the Lord, and when it says day of the Lord, it means judgment. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will melt and disintegrate, and the earth and everything done on it shall be exposed. So it's talking about a burning, two washings and a burning. Now, what does this burning produce? Well, in Revelation chapter 20, uh, 21, 21 verse 1, this is what it produces. Because remember, the first heaven went away with a roar. And it said the earth was burned by fire, melted with a fervent heat. Revelation 21, 1 says, then I saw a new, and that word in the Greek is renewed. Not brand spanking new, but renewed. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. So what happens in the springtime after the snow is gone, and, you know, it's dried up a little bit, and you've just got that ugly green brown grass? A lot of people will go out to the yards and set fire to green it up. And that's exactly what happened with the burning that's coming with the new, with the new earth. It's going to be renewed, kind of slash and burn agriculture, so to speak. It's going to be renewed. So ultimately, what did the flood result in? What was the final product that we could say was the good that came out of the bad? Finding the good in bad situations. Where's the good in that? Well, for that, we turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. This is ultimately the good that came out of the flood. Because this was the ultimate goal and result of the flood. Then in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by Adonai into a town in the Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Miriam, or we know her as Mary. Um, okay, keep going here. And coming to her, the angel said, Shalom, favored one, Adonai is with you. But at the message, she was perplexed and kept wondering what kind of greeting this may be. And the angel spoke to her, Do not be afraid, Miriam, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. He will be great and will be called Ben Elyon, the son of the Most High. Adonai Elohim 
the Lord God, and will give him the throne of David, his father. He shall reign over the house of Jacob for all eternity, and his kingdom will be a kingdom without end. And Miriam said to the angel, how can this be since I have not been intimate with a man? And he responded, the angel said to her, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of Elion, the Most High, will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One being born will be called Ben Elohim, the Son of God. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son in her old age and the one uh, who is called barren is six months pregnant for nothing is impossible with God. So Miriam said, Behold, the servant of Adonai, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel left her. And then we go to chapter two. Now it happened in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the world's inhabitants. This was the first census taken when Cyrene was governor over Syria. Everyone was traveling to be registered in his own city. Now Joseph also went up from Galilee and out of the town of Nazareth to Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was from the house of the family of David. He went to register with Miriam, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. But while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in strips of cloth, and set him down in a manger, since there was no room for them in the inn. And so this was ultimately the goal of what had happened. Because the birth of the Messiah fulfilled the Genesis uh, 3.15 prophecy, put a stop to the Genesis, or to the Genesis 6.4, fallen sons of God cohabitating with women. But we know something like that's going to occur again, because as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. So there, Satan's going to try one last hurrah, one last trick to, to try to you know, overpower this Messiah who's, who's going to come back on the clouds. So the ark... The ark represents safety in the midst of judgment. We're about ready to enter judgment. Where's the good in that? How do we find the bad in this in the situation? Because who's going to get the brunt of this, this judgment that's coming? Who's going to be at the brunt of all this bad stuff that the baddies are planning for us? It's going to be us believers, us Christians, because we go against the world's narrative. But just as eight people were preserved in the ark of safety in the midst of judgment, the judgment took everyone on earth, wiped everybody out on earth. The only ones that were left behind, get what I'm saying here, left behind were the eight people. So we want to be left behind. It means we've survived God's wrath and God's judgment. Being left behind doesn't mean you missed the rapture. Being taken doesn't mean you've been raptured. Being taken means you've been taken in judgment. That's a bad thing. So when tribulation comes, we will find safety in the midst of judgment. All the, all the bowl, uh, bowls of wrath and the vials and the plagues and the seals that are broken, that's going to be falling on all the bad people. Now, it's going to be bad for us because Satan's going to make war on the saints, which is going to be permitted. Some of us will be martyred. But in the midst of the tribulation where God is pouring out his wrath on sinful mankind, unrepentant mankind, it will be as if we are in the ark. We will be in the ark of safety. Now, is it going to be scary? Heck yeah, it's going to be scary. I bet you it was scary on the ark. Going, weaving and bobbing and going up and down with those mighty waves and thinking, oh, are we going to, are we going to uh, um, you know, turn over? Are we going to capsize? Are we going to run into a mountain and be shattered? What's going to happen? But no matter how scary or dark it may have been, the eight survived. No matter how dark and scary the tribulation that we may have to go through is, we're going to be in the ark of safety. 
God's going to overshadow and protect us. And so that's something to rejoice about. So hopefully we've been able to see the good and the bad situation in Noah's day and the good and the bad situation that's coming our way. Where's the good in that? We just found it in the word of God. That's where all good things are. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your wonderful world word. Thank you for your wonderful world, too. We thank you that this world is going to go through a refurbishing. This world is going to be renewed, and we can't wait for that to happen. And when that day comes, it, it, it's, it's going to be unbelievable. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your world. Thank you for everything you've done for us, everything that you've given us. And, Lord, our fallen nature just has that inclination to find the bad in something. We can't believe that something could be good. And we want to find the bad to justify our badness, our corruptness, our fallenness. That's why we love to find dirt on politicians. That's why we like to see good people fall. It's just good political and religious gossip and fodder. It's like a train wreck. We just can't turn away. But Lord, we thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can find good in bad situations. When people want to point to your word and say, that's unfair, that's unjust, how can God be holy? How can God be loving when this happened? You got to put on your thinking cap and you got to think with the, with the, with the Holy Spirit and not think with the, with the mind of man. Not look at the scriptures with fleshly eyes as if we were reading Shakespeare, but look with the spiritual eyes through the Holy Spirit. That's how we can find the justice in the good and bad situations. And it has nothing to do with spin doctoring. It has everything to do with our fallen mind that we can't comprehend the goodness of God without the help of the Holy Spirit. And when we see things through the Holy Spirit's eyes, ah, everything makes sense. And the arguments of man and the ridicule of man just seems so moot and so ridiculous, Lord. Help us to habitually to see the good and bad situations, to understand the word of God from your divine perspective, because you are holy, you are just, you are loving, you are perfect. We love you and we praise you. We ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. We'll end with a blessing over the word as well. But the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of God is quick which means it's alive, it's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and of the marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. See, when you don't rightly divide the word of truth, that's when people say God's not fair, God's not holy. See, there's a contradiction here. There's a contradiction there. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is every one that retaineth her.